Hello and welcome to UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray. We are happy that you joined us for another conversation with the members of our UWO community. Many of us have moved from state to state, uh, maybe from cities within a state, maybe even to another country because of job opportunities. I know I'm one of those people. Today on UWO Now, we'll talk about how many are moving in large numbers because of changes in climate. Here with us today are Stephanie Spehar, Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Sustainability Institute for Regional Transformation at UWO, and Douglas Haynes, Professor of English at UWO and author of Every Day We Live is the Future, Surviving in a City of Disasters. Thanks so much, both of you, for coming by and talking to us about this important subject. Thanks for having us, Wendell. Thank you. Dr. Spehar, why don't you tell us or remind our audience what exactly the uh, Sustainability Institute for Regional Transformation is. Yeah, sure. So um, the Institute was created in 2017, and the vision behind it is to try to advance sustainability in our region, in Wisconsin more broadly, and even beyond that, through inquiry, education, and action. So what we really try to do is to take what we do best as an institution of higher learning, so research and teaching, and to create more opportunities to develop sustainability themes in those areas, to do more community-applied research projects in those areas, basically to take what we do and extend it into our broader community to try to address long-standing sustainability problems in our region. Is migration then part of what you study there, or...? climate change and its impact on migration? How, how does this uh, fit into what uh, you're doing? At, uh, yeah, so we do, we have a lot of um, activities and conversations around climate that are ongoing. Um, so we are involved in the climate action and resilience planning that our university is currently undertaking to try to figure out how our university is going to respond to the climate crisis and um, adapt to it. Um, some of that also extends into the community, so working with community leaders to understand how our university can influence and work with members of the community to try to create a more climate-resilient region. So it's part of that okay. work that we're doing. We also try to help support um, teaching efforts around climate, and we have some ongoing research projects that definitely touch on aspects of climate. Okay, now <clears throat> I mentioned uh, at the top about migration and climate um, I've heard about this subject matter once or twice, particularly when I was uh, uh, watching, a couple of times, once when I was watching reports on what was happening at the U.S. border around Texas, uh, some uh, reporter mentioned that many of these people were coming here because of issues uh, at home uh, where they were, where they just no longer could sustain life. And a lot of it had to do with climate change. I also saw um, a report um, uh, of a leader in Africa who was talking about migration issues and the impact of climate on countries in Africa and them not really having a lot to have impacted climate change but are feeling the brunt of it. What can we say about migration uh, patterns that we're seeing, Douglas, uh, as a result of climate change? Yeah, um, it's a big Big question, big topic. I'll try to just lay out some of the broad trends. So, and then we'll, we can talk about some specific examples. 
So uh, scientists are learning more and more about what's happening every day with the climate and how it's pushing people out of where they live. We know, for example, that uh, each tenth of a degree of warming takes about 140 million people out of what is considered prime human habitat. We might not be used to thinking about ourselves that way as having prime habitat, but there are limits to the kinds of and environments that, that, that humans habitat. could survive in. I think I'll turn it to Stephanie as an anthropologist <laughs> to talk about that a little bit yeah, more, and I'll jump back in. Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm a biological anthropologist, which means I think about humans in an evolutionary context. So yeah, like humans, you know, we can exist and thrive in kind of a narrow range really frankly, a narrow range of temperatures and conditions. And certain types of conditions are required to support the kinds of lives and the kinds of societies that we have created, right? Okay. So things like large-scale agriculture, thing, all sorts of things like that, that you know, as the climate warms and local environmental conditions change, sometimes those sorts of activities that support human societies become Impossible. So, like desertification, for example. So, if an area essentially becomes, um, you know, very arid and okay. without sufficient water and is incapable of supporting agriculture or human habitation, those areas are going to become not prime human habitat, right? They're not going to be able to support large scale communities of people or even significant groups of people. They're going to be areas that could only support maybe really marginal human habitation and activity. What about and animals that. as well, right? Well, yeah, Absolutely. for sure. So we could also have a whole conversation about, about the migration of non-human species in response to climate. Mm -hmm. But even thinking about ourselves, I mean, we are biological creatures that require certain, you know, environmental conditions to support ourselves, right? And um, what climate change is doing is making that less possible in more and more of the world. And heat, too. I think heat is another big one. Yeah, we could talk uh, more about heat. I just think it's really also helpful to talk about a real deep historical perspective. Mm -hmm. That the last 12,000 years or so, since the end of the last ice age, what's called by geologists the Holocene, is really like a sweet spot for humans yeah. that we've been living in for the last 12,000 years ago uh, yeah, or been so. An, it's been a time of very stable temperatures yeah. and also relatively um, cool global temperatures. Mm -hmm. And that is what we think has supported things like, you know, large-scale agriculture and large-scale civilizations. And it's mm. made us capable as a species of developing that way of inhabiting the Earth. And essentially what we're doing right now is putting the Earth's climate and atmosphere into conditions that, that no longer will create those Holocene-like conditions, environmental and climate conditions, and basically will probably constrict what is possible um, when it comes to humans being able to inhabit and engage in certain kinds of activities in parts of the world. And in fact, we've already done it, right? Mm -hmm. We're no longer living in, in those conditions that allowed us to create complex societies in all these different parts of the world from the Arctic to the hottest deserts, right? Yeah. Um, and um, we're living in an atmosphere that humans have never experienced. So we're living at temperature levels and an amount of carbon in the atmosphere that is unprecedented in human experience. We've been around for 200,000 years or so, Our right? Our species has been around yeah. 200,000 years, yeah. but the current levels of like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was previously last seen like 2 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So this is before our species even emerged and definitely before, as Douglas was saying, sort of large-scale civilization emerged, which only started happening around 10,000 years ago, supported by the Holocene climate conditions. So... 
Yeah. Yeah. So the way I like to talk about it with students is we're running an experiment now. Basically, we don't know how humans are going to survive in that conditions that we've created because we've never done it before. Um, mm-hmm. And there are real practical implications of that, like Stephanie was talking about heat. For example, mm-hmm. human beings have a limit to what's called uh, to the wet bulb temperature that they can exist in, and that's the combination of humidity and heat, which uh, we're experiencing here today, the hottest day uh, probably of the year in Wisconsin, predicted to break records in many places. And uh, we hear on the weather about the heat index, right, mm-hmm. which is essentially that wet bulb temperature, what it feels like. And there is a physiological limit to what humans can withstand. And in yeah, many we have to thermoregulate. Yes. I mean, we that and if we get outside of a narrow temperature range, our bodies can't function anymore and shut down. And so we've been hearing in the news already this summer, for example, uh, about the ways temperatures in the Southwest, for example, have been responsible for uh, unprecedented number of uh, heat illnesses and deaths from heat. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all around the world. Yeah. Um, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, as you were talking about, Latin America. And um, so one of the effects of, of just heat itself means people increasingly can't work outdoors. And as we know, there are a lot of professions like agriculture, construction that require people to work outdoors. Um, so if you are a farmer in Central America, for example, where uh, increasingly there are a lot of people coming from Central America to the upper Midwest, um, and you can't physically do your work because of heat or the combination of heat and drought, uh, which is another uh, increasing phenomenon in certain parts of the world, is making it impossible to grow crops, crops where you live. And you live in a rural agricultural place. You look around and there are real, really no options for you mm-hmm. other than to leave. So, for example... Um, Here in the upper Midwest, uh, over the last few years, we've experienced a huge wave of people coming from what's called the dry corridor of Central America, um, where it's an agricultural area, um, where farming is becoming increasingly um, unrealistic for people. Um, And we have to remember, too, these are farmers who don't, they're not able to go to the bank and get a big loan. These are people who have been farmers, traditionally farmers, always been farmers, generational farmers. Subsistence farmers. And yeah. they now can't farm where they live because mm-hmm. of changes. Because of changes. Um, many of them climate-related. It's always important to put climate in context and say, you know, see that it interacts with other forces in a society. Okay. But where you have a society where the climate is changing so rapidly or conditions where the climate is changing so rapidly and nothing else to fall back on economically, people have no choice but to leave. So we have, for example, a lot of Nicaraguans, Hondurans, coming to the upper Midwest, many of them finding their way to dairy farms here in Wisconsin, uh, who are leaving in particular from this area of northern Nicaragua and, and Honduras, southern Honduras, what's called the Dry Corridor, where farming is, is no longer really tenable anymore. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. You're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, and we're talking about human and maybe a little later, non-human migration <laughs> resulting from climate change. Our guests are Stephanie Spehar and Douglas Haynes. What have we seen? How much of an impact of climate change are we seeing? I mean, we, we see the pictures on the border uh, uh, along Texas, but I don't think many people realize, Douglas, that here in the upper Midwest, in Wisconsin, we're also seeing uh, migration as a result of climate change. And you mentioned the dairy industry here in Wisconsin. Tell us a little bit more what, about what you're seeing. Yeah, the dairy industry relies almost entirely um, 
on uh, immigrant labor um, to milk the cows, to move the manure around, to manage dairy farms. And that uh, has always been the case? That has not always been the case. Um, it's increasingly become the case as small family dairy farms have gone out of business over the last couple of decades. Okay. Um, and farms have consolidated. So where farms are getting bigger and bigger and they need a lot more labor. And um, it's uh, gotten to be the case where Americans don't really want to do this work anymore. And so farmers have been looking around for sources of labor. And originally in Wisconsin, uh, migrants from Mexico were just sort of showing up or they reached out to people who could place migrants on their farms, farmers did. And that's kind of how this phenomenon started. Um, and most of these folks are undocumented. Um, farmers uh, are will not tell you that per se. They'll say they check their papers, and mm -hmm. I'm not blaming farmers here. Um, but it's a well-known fact. Um, ProPublica, the news organization, has been doing some great reporting on this um, recently, actually, in a series called America's Dairyland. And uh, the industry is really relying now on these folks. Uh, again, many of them, increasingly Nicaraguans, coming from this area of northern Nicaragua, um, who are putting the cheese on our plates, who are milking our kids' milk, um, and they are without legal status, most of them in this country. They're working uh, often, uh, 60 to 80 hours a week, um, for um, between 10 and $18 an hour, um, subject to no labor regulations, really, because they're they're working in what is essentially a, a, an unseen black market, uh, unregulated. Um, and it's a, it's a real issue both for the workers themselves here in Wisconsin, but for the sustainability of the dairy industry. But again, just to get back to our, our common thread here, uh, I think it's really important to recognize that um, these folks who are moving as a result of climate, and again, climate in conjunction with other factors often, um, are all around us already. Well, it's not just a far-off future phenomenon. Well, let me ask you, Historically speaking, there have always been migrants who've come mm -hmm. to the United States to work, to, to pull crops when uh, it's that time of the year. What's the difference we're seeing now? What's the differentiation between historical seasonal migration and what we're seeing now? Yeah, so you're talking, for example, about the Bracero program that started in the um, 1950s to bring um, seasonal laborers, mm -hmm. mostly from Texas and the Rio Grande Valley, um, to places like Wisconsin to harvest cucumbers and other crops for canning, peas and corn. Um, that has been happening for a while. That was a U.S. government-sponsored program. And many of those folks also um, are documented um, U.S. citizens or have um, some kind of legal permission to do that work. But when folks uh, leave, for example, Central America today looking for a new life in the United States, um, most of them do not have access to that kind of program. And for dairy specifically, there is no such program. It's not seasonal work. And there are no U.S. government provided visas or work permits for year-round agricultural employment. So nobody in the working in the dairy industry who migrates here can get a legal permit to stay and work, despite the fact that we depend on these people to keep the dairy industry running. You're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, and we're talking today about human and non-human migration resulting from climate change. Our guests are Stephanie Spehar, professor of anthropology and director of the Sustainability Institute for Regional Transformation at UWO, and... Douglas Haynes, professor of English at UWO and author 
of every day we live is the future, surviving in a city of disasters. Let's get to know our guests a little bit better. Stephanie, what's your path to UWO? How did you get here? And uh, tell us about what you teach. Sure. Um, yeah, so I am not from the Midwest. Um, I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles. Um, but I basically became really interested in non-human primates when I lived there. I, I volunteered at a zoo and ended up doing um, a PhD in biological anthropology focused on primatology, um, particularly mm. monkeys and apes, um, at New York University. So mm. that's where I got my graduate degree. After that, I did a little bit of research and work um, in Southeast Asia, and then I got the job here. So I moved to Wisconsin. It was my first time ever being in Wisconsin when I came here for this job. Um, but I've stayed. I've made my home here. Um, I've been at UW Oshkosh now 16 years. So um, I teach a really wide range of stuff. All of it is <laughs> mostly focused on um, sort of human environment interactions because that's a research interest of mine. Um, obviously, primate behavior and ecology um, and conservation, and then also human evolution. So I teach a lot of classes that are focused on trying to understand our evolutionary history and using that to better understand ourselves today and how we respond and adapt to the world around us. And Douglas, you have authored a book. You teach in the English department as well, but you've also authored a book that's very closely related to our subject yeah. matter here today. Every day we live is the future, surviving in a city of disasters. Tell us about your book, and then uh, how you got interested or how you got on this path, so to speak, mm -hmm. of being conscious of our environment and its impact mm -hmm. on the human condition. Yeah. Um, so I've always uh, taught what's in the field of what's called environmental humanities in addition to teaching writing courses. And I teach in the environmental studies program here as well. And my Work as a writer, I'm a nonfiction writer. I do what's called literary journalism or narrative nonfiction. And I really try to tell uh, people's stories, true stories, but from the bottom up. I'm interested in these big issues like climate and migration, for example, but telling them through uh, the lived experiences of individuals and families and communities. So that interest uh, led me in um, the mid-2000s to take students to Nicaragua at the same time I was doing some reporting in Central America. I had lived in Guatemala teaching and writing um, in 2004 and took students back there in 2007. Before I came here to UW Oshkosh, I was teaching at a small college called New England College at the time, to Nicaragua, connected with a community and an organization there that made a big impact on me. And then uh, when I came here to UW Oshkosh in 2008, I um, worked with the Office of International Education to create a program for taking UW Oshkosh students to Nicaragua and doing community-based learning in uh, a couple of communities, one an urban community in the city of Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, and a rural community as well, and got to see firsthand with my students the issues that people, in this case, migrating from the countryside to the city uh, which is often a first step for many migrants. Before they leave the country, they often move to a bigger city within their own country. And I got to see firsthand how people go about um, uprooting, why they uproot, and how they try to survive in uh, a new place. And in this case, 
um, a low-income settlement kind of on the fringes of Managua, which is a city of about 2 million people that looks a lot like the low-income uh, informal settlements. Some people call them shanty towns or squatter settlements mm-hmm. that are on the fringes of cities all over the world. And I really um, saw that people were encountering big questions about how to survive in these kinds of communities, both uh, because of environmental factors. Um, flooding was becoming a big issue for the people I was observing there and talking to um, and trying to find a way to make a living in what's called the informal economy, um, finding, trying to invent a job for themselves. So, again, something that's happening all around the world. So I decided to just kind of hunker down there as much as I could and went back and forth for a period of about five years, interviewing and reporting and following around Mm. a couple of families in particular um, to tell their story of how they migrated from the countryside to the city and how they went about making a living there in the intersection of these forces of urbanization, uh, the climate crisis, and inequality, like being at the bottom of society and trying to find a way out of poverty. So the book really tells these two families' stories of those big issues. You mentioned earlier the uh, corridor um, in Nicaragua and, and, uh-huh. and, and another country. So we're talking about Central America. Yep. Also know that there's an issue in many countries in Africa uh, where they are feeling the, the brunt of uh, a changing climate, uh, not being able to uh, sustain uh, many nations having issues with migration uh, because uh, people can't grow crops anymore. Animals, there's no water to feed Mm -hmm. and animals that they may use in farming. Um, So we know that this is a global issue, but are we just seeing here in the United States and elsewhere, just the beginning of this issue? Or are we talking about, you know, this is what we're going to see for a while or is it going to get worse? What do you think? Well, um, I just read uh, an article um, based in scientific research that uh, said that we're on track to push one-third of humanity out of its most livable environment, that by late this century, three to six billion people could be trapped outside of what are really considered livable human habitats. Um, Bill mm. McKibben, the author who writes a lot about climate change, talks about how we're shrinking the, the playing field or shrinking the board game of the human uh, civilization and our, mm-hmm. and our ability to, to create human societies. So um, this is happening now. We hear in the news, uh, probably not as much as we should, about um, boats of migrants sinking in the Mediterranean all the time, people fleeing Africa in unlivable situations there. Again, and it's important to remember climate is one factor for people, politics and economics are other yeah. factors, but all those are intertwined. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's happening as you were talking about here at the U.S. border as well. Yeah, well, and I think that something to remember too with the issue of climate migration is that it affects the people who are already most vulnerable, right? And have the fewest resources and sort of capacities to respond to changes that are happening. Um, and it's a very large-scale problem. So recent estimates suggest that up to le- over a billion people could be displaced due to climate change-induced changes. Displaced. Um, by displaced, meaning they have to migrate. They've they can no, they've got to leave. 
And, um, and that, you know, some of that needing to leave, it isn't necessarily like that their environment they were living in becomes a desert, but perhaps it becomes so precarious for them to survive there that they are forced into a position economically, socially, whatever, that they have to go find somewhere new to live. So when we're talking about 1.2 billion people moving, having to find somewhere new to live, crossing borders, right, we're talking about a very large scale problem that, um, societally, um, nationally, we are not really equipped to deal with. Like, how do we deal with the questions of citizenship that will come up? How do we deal with sort of the responses of people um, in the countries that those migrants are moving to, to those kind of large-scale movements of people? And we're already seeing some of those responses. Like Douglas was saying, this isn't a future problem. It's like a now problem. And we're already seeing, particularly in Europe, like a rise of what I would call eco-fascist ideology, where people are sort of saying, hey, you know, they're acknowledging that there are environmental issues, they're acknowledging that climate change is happening, but they're saying what we need to do in response to that is protect our country, close our borders, prevent hmm. these migrants from coming in. So you can imagine, I mean, and we're already seeing the kind of fallout that people experience from that, things like boats of migrants overturning, in the Mediterranean and thousands of people dying. And um, I think that it's a problem that is here now, but it will only get worse as the effects of climate change continue to grow. Are we beyond the discussion of is climate change real or just uh, another um, part of the evolutionary history of climate on this planet? Are we now, is there still a lot of debate about this is a thing? So there's no reasonable debate about that. The scientific evidence is really um, so strong that it, it is happening and it is human-caused and that there's a very strong consensus around that. I think what we're seeing, though, are um, shifts in how um, powerful interests are responding to those realities in terms of the kinds of denial that they are employing. So I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the denial that you would hear from fossil fuel companies, from politicians, would be climate change isn't happening, or if it is happening, it's not human-caused. Now what we're seeing is a shift in tactics where people are starting to sort of use other arguments to try to stall certain types of action on climate change. So arguments about, you know, what kind of... Um, shifts to different energy sources are viable or feasible. Um, arguments about, oh, that's, you know, making the shift to renewables is not economically reasonable in this kind of time frame. They're, they're shifting to sort of different tactics to stall those changes that would, frankly, reduce their political and economic power, and that's why they want to stall them. But I guess the larger point I'm making is that there is still, um, there are still those sort of I don't know, what would you call it, Douglas? Like disinformation. Disinformation, thank you. And there, there's still that out there, but the tactics, have has, the tactics have shifted because, frankly, it's really no longer viable to maintain a position um, that climate change isn't happening. I think that's becoming less and less common because it's just less and less feasible for people to make that argument. But I don't know if you have more to say on that, Douglas. Yeah, and in fact, it's, it's ramping up in a lot of ways, the disinformation campaigns. Um, what has happened with Twitter is a good example of that. Um, a lot of clients, climate scientists are increasingly saying, um, I have to get off of what is, what is, what's Twitter's called become X. Um, because, uh, the amount.
disinformation there is totally overwhelming. Um, and uh, it's also happening with curricula so in, what, in K through 12 schools at universities. How would I yeah. know? Wh- what do you call disinformation? What is mm-hmm. What would be an argument that you would say is obviously someone trying to uh, spread disinformation? Somebody to say, for example, well, the climate's always changed. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's the big deal? About that, and we know, of course, as Stephanie was saying, that the rate of change right now is totally unprecedented. So disinformation often looks like a sort of end around, an attempt to change the conversation. Sometimes it'll be outright lies. Like uh, there was a speaker on campus last year <laughs> who outright said we can't measure global temperature, which is just not true. But again, that's a that's a shift. It's a way to change the conversation from kind of the things we've been talking about, which are how do we adapt to these changes that are massive. Um, and just sort of say we don't need to adapt to it because, as Stephanie said, powerful interests don't aren't interested in adapting and having us give up fossil fuels. Okay, so let's talk more about this issue of um, disinformation and whether or not there's been shifts in climate change uh, that would happen normally. As we've, I think, uh, there have been t- times in our the Earth's history where there have been changes in weather, temperature, so forth and so on. And that is what some would argue is happening now, not some sort of man-induced uh, climate change. The But you're saying now that that argument is, is kind of fading and more and more people are trying to say other things to get take your eye off the ball, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So how would I know? Uh, how does a, the regular person out there listen? Just everyday, average, everyday Joe or Jane who's going about their business know how to decipher what's real and what's not? That's a really good question. I think it, I think it can be really hard to know. Um, and I think that's, one of the things that we try to help people learn to do at this university, right, is how do you evaluate sources of information so that you can feel as confident as you can that that information is accurate and true. Um, and I think to me, one of the key things to think about is what is the, what is the source? Where is that information coming from? Who's, who's funding it, right? Who are the people sort of behind that publication or that website, wherever it is that you got that information. And that's something to really look at critically and to think about as you consider how reliable is that information. And I'm sure you have more to say on this, Douglas. Yeah, I think uh, Stephanie's right on doing some basic what we call in in (laughs) English studies rhetorical analysis, thinking about uh, audience. Who is this message meant for? Where is it coming from? How is it presenting? What points of view are not included in this uh, information? How balanced does it seem? And when I say balanced, I'm not talking about you know two points of view or climate change is real or climate change is not real, but how many perspectives does it seem to acknowledge exist? Um, yeah, so doing that kind of work and also um, recognizing that there is a clear consensus now about what is happening, that um, the climate is changing at unprecedented rates in human history and that humans are responsible for it, that there, there is no argument about that. And if you see people arguing about that or trying to question that, 
uh, it's probably an attempt to um, get you to think about something else. Yeah, one, yeah. one thing I'd say on that subject, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is really the international gold standard when it comes to um, climate information and to, um, you know, advising about what to do about climate change. And what is that? So the Intergovernmental wow. Panel on Climate Change is a group of hundreds of scientists from around the world who come together regularly to assess the state of the global climate and to also put together reports on making recommendations for policymakers on how to adapt. And so these are experts from around the world who come together and come to a consensus about these issues. And you can go on their website and see all their reports and you can see exactly what they say about how the climate is changing. All the data, all the information. It can be a little overwhelming if you're not a scientist, but they do have summaries for people who are non-experts. But the consensus among those folks, as well as other associated people and groups, is that this is happening. And then there's maybe one or two or three loud voices who say it's not. And that's what I would urge people to consider. When you have a consensus of the world's experts saying one thing, and then you have two or three people who probably do not have deep expertise saying something else, you know, I, I think you can use your powers of critical thinking to mm -hmm. assess what is likely to be true in that situation. And we've been talking about human migration, but what has been the impact on non-humans in terms of climate change? Uh, really quickly, as we start to wrap things up, what, what's, I mean, how are we seeing species affected by this? So non-human species are definitely affected, just like humans. They have um, sort of a range of environmental conditions they can exist in that they're adapted to deal with. And as those conditions shift, and so that can be things like rainfall patterns, that can be things like mm -hmm. the length of seasons, that can be things like the length of time that different foods are available, right? Things like that. Those species, certain areas are not going; they're not going to be able to survive in them. And one of the things that Douglas brought up earlier is the rate of change. So one of the reasons we know that climate change happening now is different than climate change that has happened in the Earth's history is how rapidly our climate is changing, right? And so the rate of change is so great that those species—they're not humans, right? They can't adapt culturally in the way that we can, where we can change our behaviors relatively quickly. They don't have that capacity. They have evolved responses, right? They have instinctual responses most of the time. Some mm -hmm. species have a certain amount of behavioral flexibility. But basically, the environmental conditions change to the point where they can't adapt to them. They either have to move or they die. And there are many, and think about the world now, right? With humans having sort of chopped up the world's habitats, you know, with our roads and our places that we live and our cities and all that, their, their ability to move is really, really diminished. So in many cases, species simply can't move and they disappear from an area because they can't survive in it. And we're, we're seeing that already with lots of different species. We're seeing things like, you know, for example, northward shifts. This is just one example. Northward shifts of tree species. I mean, right? In, in here in the Midwest. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah. Like, and this has um, been well documented. I mean, there's, for example, efforts in the city of Chicago to start planting species that used to be found way further south, but now the climate has shifted so much that the climate zones in which tree species are adapted to those zones, you know, those are further north. So in Chicago, there's efforts to plant all sorts of other trees that wouldn't have existed there 30 years ago. And to bring it close to home, um, here in Wisconsin, for example, maple syrup is a big uh, product. Um, and uh, there are many estimates that say that um, maple trees or sugar maple trees are no longer going to be able to survive 
um, in most of Wisconsin over the next half a century or so. So that's a, a human impact of the ways that the changing climate impacts non-human species as well. And there are, there are so many more stories like that yeah. as well. But yeah, if you can't move, then you're, you're stuck basically yeah. mm-hmm. um, with a real difficult situation. And we really thought it was important to bring that up with people just to bring it back around to our starting point as well. Um, and remember that there are many populations of people that live on islands around the world that are rapidly disappearing under rising seas. And that's mm-hmm. going to be a real big human rights issue that we're going to be hearing about uh, a lot as well as uh, island nations, particularly in the Pacific, but all around the world start disappearing. Um, what happens when your whole country disappears? Where do you go? What rights do you have? What happens to your culture? What happens to your citizenship? Yeah. Where I mean, you know, where, where do those nations exist if they're, the physical place where they were rooted is literally gone? Tough um, questions, yeah. serious yeah. questions, and maybe we'll have you back on to help us address some of those uh, on another episode. But we want to thank you so much for coming by and talking to us today. It's been really good and enlightening information. Thanks so much to both of you for coming by and talking to us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to UWO Now. Remember to catch the latest episode of UWO Now. Go to our website, wrst.org. You can also watch us on the UWO YouTube page. I'm Wendell Ray. Thanks so much for listening.